Welcome to How Art is Born, a podcast from the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver about the origins of artists and their creative and artistic practices. I'm your host, R. Allen Brooks, writer, artist, and professor. Today I'm joined by Salida, Colorado-based artist, Maya Ruth Lee. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I appreciate you being here. So uh, Maya, just to start us off, can you tell us a little about who you are? Well, um, I am a mother, I'm an artist. Um, I currently live in Colorado um, as of two and a half years ago. And um, I'm a thinker, uh, I like to make stuff. Um, and I, yeah, that's that's about it. Yeah, now, I mean, I think that's a good baseline. So I wanna know uh, what, what was sort of your, do you remember the first time that art spoke to you in a particular way or inspired you? You know, it's funny how art or, or how I was introduced to art. Um, hmm. It wasn't really introduced to me as art, but hmm. it was introduced to me through culture and I guess living. But yeah. I grew up in Kathmandu, Nepal. Okay. And just by being in Nepal was just full of inspirations um, mm. through uh, celebrations, through tradition, um, just walking the street, just knowing Nepali people, um, yeah. knowing their traditions, um, and their religion. It's just part of life, I think. And just by, by being there, by growing up, being there at such a young age, Mm -hmm. Um, I was there from about five years old until 18. Okay. So it was kind of the most spongy years, you know, yeah, like formative I, years. Definitely. Mm -hmm. I really soaked it all in. That was mm -hmm. my introduction to sort of creativity, I think. Okay. So that's interesting. Um, the idea that it wasn't introduced as art that you absorbed through culture. So I guess what specifically moved you? What, what did you feel most connected with and all of that? I was really moved by um, mostly people, but, hmm. you know, it really, you know, art wasn't hanging on the walls in museums or galleries. I had very little access to anything like that. Uh -huh. um, in Kathmandu now, there are a number of museums and contemporary art galleries, but when I was there, in the late 80s and 90s mm -hmm. that just wasn't a thing you uh, know so for me it was really just by participating in the everyday activities in life and by being around people um you know i grew up watching bollywood and yeah. eating nepali food and uh walking by temples and secretly joining in in ceremonies um uh -oh. and you know, in Nepal, art is prevalent in the in, by way of religion in terms of, you know, uh, monasteries, murals, um, tanka paintings, crafts and arts. So it was really just like everywhere. Everywhere I turned to was like a beautiful shrine, right. uh, you know, kind of decorated with, you know, incredible ornaments. And uh. I would turn around there would be a beautiful temple with like beautiful ceremonies um the streets were filled with color and and beautiful scents and to me i that was it, it's wild to think back on how that was my everyday life yeah. um yeah and only by leaving did i actually realize how unique and special that was that's how it goes Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in that aspect where you were saying that um, you walk by the temples and join in ceremonies. Mm -hmm. um, um, I'd like to hear more about what, what that meant to you. Like, why? Why? Like, was it? Yeah. Tell me. About I was that. just, I think, a very curious child. I still am. Huh. Okay. And just curiosity just got me to um, ask a lot of questions. And because a lot of these ceremonies are religious, um, mm -hmm. And my parents are religious in the opposite way in terms of, you know, they're Christian. They're very conservative mm -hmm. Christians. So mm -hmm. 
I had this extreme polar, extremely polarized kind of spiritual uh, upbringing. Right. Um, so in a way, I was forced to think about spirituality from a very young age, hmm. thinking about mortality, thinking about afterlife, thinking about reincarnation um, in the Buddhist or Hindu sense. And then, yeah. you know, in a Christian sense, thinking about, you know, mortality in terms of heaven and hell and right. sin and guilt. And, you know, hmm. it was just like, kind of a, an overload of these like very big deep questions i guess huh. that is a lot yeah well a lot. <laughs> uh, especially as a child I, I wonder uh was there a clear moment for you where uh you decided you were going to make your own art or whether you identified it at start or was that just kind of always like an organic thing for you um it's funny because you know, I think my parents being very conservative Christian, I uh -huh. think in their mind, they really wanted to rear me towards that direction. Mm. But we just happened to be living in Nepal where it was so rich with culture. <laughs> right. And so it was impossible for them. You know, it was mm. just like I was seeped in it. Um, but I remember, you know, I think as part of their uh, just sort of more like didactic or kind of more of like a disciplinary um, uh, approach. They put me right. into an art school, which wasn't actually an art school. It was um, a monastery where Buddhist monks painted Tonka paintings. <laughs> huh. Wow. And Tonka paintings, if you're not familiar with it, they're um, a style or a type of painting that is done by... Uh, Buddhist monks and used for very specific um, like meditation processes or you know depictions of deities and gods mm -hmm. um, and they're beautifully painted in terms of like you know they it's it's prepared for days the pigments are all natural um, the brushes are used with you know horse hair or yak hair and you know, these monks actually uh, sit and paint these beautifully elaborate paintings for over the course of three, sometimes six months. Hmm. So it, it becomes part of their meditation process. So yeah. they kind of like ushered me into this process. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I just remember at first I was like, oh my God, like, how am I going to sit through this? I have to like draw line by line. It's a very delicate process. Right. Um, and then through it, I feel like I kind of gained this confidence of, oh, I kind of get it, you know? Hmm. Um, this is a really beautiful process. And I was very young at the time. So um, I think they accidentally put me into this situation where I became more connected with with, with Buddhism or the process of, huh. of art making in that kind of spiritual realm. So I think that was my first connection to art making in a way. Right. So, uh, you know, there's this thing where uh, that comes up a lot when I'm talking to people on this podcast about how some art is specifically about healing you as an artist and then some art is about uh, what you want to say to the world, and then sometimes it's both. Um, and it sounds like, if I'm hearing you right, that that first experience was largely about what the art did for you. For sure. For so, sure. Um, yeah. Did you have more to say on that? Yeah, I never actually thought about it that way. Huh. But I think you're totally right. Um, okay. So it was it was a healing process that I didn't think I needed at the time. Ah. Uh, yeah. Hmm. And did, did you feel like uh, after that you were sort of immediately in that space of, I want to do more of this, or was that sort of a gradual process? I think I felt peace in that process. And mm. that was the first time I actually had felt that. Mm. And I was like, whatever this is, I need to hold on to it. Um, yeah. And I had no idea what that might look like, you know, mm -hmm. what even being an artist even meant. Mm. Um. But I remember just thinking, this feels good. 
Okay, so then what would what was like the next step for you, just as a <laughs> the next know, step creative was, journey? The next step was kind of severe um, because you know my parents said, "Oh, you want to you want to do art? Okay, let's set up a whole structure for you." You know, so huh. um, they sort of created this whole program to send me to Korea to okay. um, study in an art university. Mm-hmm. That structure is very unique, actually, because there's an entrance exam. Huh. The entrance exam requires, it's basically four hours of a rendering of a Greek bust. Huh. <laughs> That's intense. <laughs> the exam has changed since then, but okay. at the time, that was what the examination was. And yeah. I was like, what? Like, rendering a <laughs> Greek bust? And also only with a 4B pencil. on an A2 sheet of paper. So this is pretty big. Right. So in order to pass that exam, you need to practice rendering a Greek bust Mm. for years. (laughs) Like every day. (laughs) So it kind of catapulted into this very strict, very frustrating process of art making. Because it wasn't, it didn't have to do with creativity. Um, and these Greek busts are like, you know, Venus, Apollo, Homer. <laughs> these like white figures that are made of plaster. And, you know, at the examination, you have no idea which figure you're going to get, which bust you're going to uh. get, or which angle you're going to get of that bust. Wow. To draw the hat. So if you think about like a very hardcore, like strict technical technical education of art, like that's what it was. Hmm. So it kind of stripped away this like joy for me. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds yeah. very technical, but but it's interesting because the thing that made you first interested in art was a very like methodical, technical thing. True. But in this case, uh, it was just about the, the pressure of it or like what was Well, it was because um, it was nonsensical. Uh, it was totally uh, nonsensical. It had no purpose. Right. Um, I, had no, I had no connection to these Greek mythological figures or, you know, these mm. philosophers or. Yeah. I had no idea why I had to draw them day after day. Right. And and the pressure of of course that yeah. I had to render in high definition <laughs> in hyper realism with a yeah. pencil in four hours is close to impossible. So the reason uh-huh. why you practice every day is not because uh it's not just for the practice, it's for it's because you end up memorizing. Oh. how to draw specific yeah. parts. So it's almost like a memorization of the hand and the, you know. Well, I was going to say, now you got me on a cliffhanger because you, you said it robbed you of the joy, but uh, what, what happened? Did you, did you do the exam? Did you, I did the, how did it go? I did the exam and, you know, it was funny because the day before, you uh, know, I was like, you know, nervous. I was at the art, uh, in Korea, they're called hagwons. Hagwon okay. is where you basically study to get into the Ivy League, okay. the university you want to go to. And Korean education is very hardcore, but mm. Hagwon, everyone goes to Hagwon for all the various topics that you want to study. But I was okay. at the Hagwon, and my teacher said, you know what, let's draw Homer from a 45-degree profile angle. And I was like, all right, mm. let's do it. Yeah. The day of the exam draw the hat there's you know busts kind of situated all over this hall or this mm-hmm. big uh, auditorium and seats around it and you just get a number so i hmm. pick my number i go to my seat and it's the 45 degree angle of homer that okay. i had just practiced the night before wow that's cool so i was like okay i guess this is a sign <laughs> <laughs> right and i passed Huh, nice. And, you know, that was sort of like just the beginning of 
what 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 became like more of like this very rigorous technical education of art in Korea, which kept kind of you know taking the joy out of it for me. But I went with it, you know. I was like, all right, let's do it. I'm yeah. sure I'll learn something from it, you know. Well, now I would like to know how did you like what process did you recover your joy in art? How did you find it again? Or have you? I don't want to. Well, you know, I graduated. Once I graduated, Uh, I actually didn't make art for uh, about 10 years. Wow. And I think it took about that long to recuperate Mm -hmm. (laughs) and find what I really wanted to do. And that happened, I think, when I arrived in New York. And that's when Hmm. I started making art again. Okay, so what was the trigger in New York? Like, what you know what was the catalyst for you to start making art again? Um, well, it was my en- entrance into the U.S., um, uh-huh. into this new chapter in my life. Huh. And I felt the need for it, which hmm. was the first time. Um, I felt that, you know, if I couldn't find something that I could find peace in, yeah. I would have to go back to Asia. <laughs> oh, it was okay. almost kind of like um, a survival mechanism at that point. And yeah. what I resorted to was making things. So the art is healing you again. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Okay, so now you were talking about, um, as a child, you absorbing art through culture and not even being particularly aware that it's art. Uh, when you move to a city like New York, obviously there's a whole bunch of cultures and uh did the same kind of thing happen when you moved there were you absorbing it in that way i was but for the first time i realized that art was a thing ah you know like Uh it was such a thing yeah um i was really shook actually i was like there's museums there's so many galleries there's so many artists (laughs) everyone's making something (laughs) (laughs) i was you know really invigorated actually um and as overwhelming as it was um Mm. but you know i think new york especially in that sense because in that process you meet a lot of like-minded people Mm. and i feel like when you're lucky you really meet people who you connect with and i was able to i was lucky enough to have sort of that community forming as my experience grew. Hmm. So I didn't feel completely isolated in that experience. I felt like I was part of something. Yeah. And that felt awesome. Hmm. Okay, so you had this education in arts um, that obviously uh, taught you some things, and then you had the 10-year break. You come to New York, you come back into it. How did you find what your medium was going to be or what kind of art you wanted to make? I started just like, you know, looking for materials that were accessible to me. The very first piece I made, can I explain it to you? Yeah, (laughs) I believe in you. I actually ended up showing it at the MCA Denver 10 years after. But the first piece I ever made, um, you know, I had this, it was, it was actually from a dream, weirdly. Okay. I had a dream. I walked into the studio of, of this person I know, and she had this zine that she made, you know? Uh-huh. And each page was heat sensitive. So you would huh. touch it and the colors would change. Yeah. It was like this really tripped out thing. And I was like, oh my God, that is so smart. I wish I had thought of that. And I woke up from that dream and I was like, oh my God, it was a dream. (laughs) (laughs) I can do this. I can do this. And so I started (laughs) researching if anything like that existed, like heat sensitive thermochromic materials. Uh And alas, yes, there there is, you know, fabrics, papers that change color with touch. And so I thought about it for a while and... I decided to make an installation, which was basically an electrical heat blanket plugged in hmm. on the wall. 
Okay. And laid over it was the thermochromic fabric, which was in different colors, say red. Hmm. If you lay it over the electrical heat blanket, the part that changes color is the wire that's embedded in the electrical heat blanket. Hmm. And the wire looks like a wine yeah, like a snake. Like an S, yeah. Or, um, and yeah, it just goes S, like this, uh, you know? Curly, yeah. And that part turns to blue, for example. Uh, and that was it. Huh. And I was like, oh. I have no idea what this is. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this now? <laughs> <laughs> but that was my first piece I made in New York. And yeah. I remember just being like, I'm just going to try stuff out. Huh. I'm just going to like experiment you know, pick up materials, but whatever I could afford to, you know, at the yeah, end of the day. Yeah. That's the, second thing I, the second thing I ever made, which also ended up being shown at the MC Temper, it was kind yeah. of a big kind of like full circle, which was a really awesome moment um, when I was able to show them for the first time after 10 mm. years. But second piece I ever made in New York was um, uh, a painting made out of fabric band-aids. Huh. And the fabric band-aids, I just came across them at, you know, Dwayne Reed or something. Yeah. And they come in, like, various colors, obviously. But they also have very distinct um, shapes and sizes. Hmm. And they're specifically designed for parts of your body and crevices of your body. So a band-aid for your knee mm -hmm. is more of like a wider patch. Right. Um, whereas there's like a band-aid that looks like a cross that is to be overlapped in more of like a different part of your body. Hmm. There's like long pieces of fabrics that are supposed to wrap around your finger, etc. Right. So I collected like boxes and boxes of different fabric, uh, fabric band-aids and just put them on, you know, into this like, I guess, arrangement onto canvas. And huh. ironed it down, and they work like um, almost like uh, heat, like patches. If you iron it okay. down, it really sticks down well. So that was my second piece, you know. So I was just kind of like messing around and playing with whatever I could find, honestly. Yeah. Um, well, I want to ask about the band aids with the ironing. Did you know that that would have that effect, or was that just you experimenting? Experimenting, actually. Uh -huh. Now the adhesive has changed, but then what I actually had to do, did you know back in the day, fabric, like Band-Aid adhesive is, was made out of fish bladder? <laughs> I've never heard of that. <laughs> that messed up. Yeah. It's not vegan. Wow. Well, now it is, but I think, you know, kind of back when vegan products wasn't a thing. Right. Huh. Um, so... It is an archival, so I had to figure out another adhesive to go between the band-aid adhesive and, and, the, and the canvas to really stick it Right. But yeah, by experimenting, huh. just by messing around. Hi, this is Valerie Cassell Oliver, curator of the exhibition, The Dirty South, Contemporary Art, Material Culture, and the Sonic Impulse. Occupying three floors at MCA Denver, the Dirty South makes visible the roots of Southern hip-hop culture and reveals how the aesthetic traditions of the African-American South have shaped the visual art and musical expression over the last 100 years. This exhibition features an intergenerational group of artists working in a variety of genres, from sculpture to painting and drawing to photography and film, as well as sound pieces and large-scale installation works. Head over to mcadenver.org visit and use the code TDS20. That's TDS20 for a 20% discount on general admission for this exhibition, which is on view until February 5th, 2023. I hear your exploration in, in these pieces, so I'm interested about what it meant to you, right? Because um, I'm talking to a lot of artists who had a lot of struggle with believing that they were an artist and um, then have a struggle with 
thinking that their art should should do something. Um, and wh whatever that is, whether it's um, share a message with the world or uh, whatever, you know. But it seems like for you, the creation of the art is a large part of what is uh, significant to you. Is there is there something else? I think that's. I mean, you know, again, it kind of stems from curiosity first. Mm -hmm. I almost, it's, you know, when I see or maybe come up with maybe an idea, I have yeah. to try it out. Huh. Like, is, is it going to work? Like, is it going to look okay? Right. Um, and then, you know, there's like a bunch of things I've tried that have never seen the light of day because right. it sucks, you know? <laughs> um, but I think by trying out and experimenting, it invokes like this playfulness yeah. that huh. is very um, private for me, I think. Hmm. And if that reaches outside of myself, then awesome. Yeah. You know? That's like huh. I, I couldn't I couldn't be more happy. I love that. But if I'm able to keep that for myself, that's also very special for me. That's a really cool place to be as a creative person. I think so. And I try to remind myself that, you know, as I get older and I kind of, you know, accumulate more experiences, I don't want mm. to lose that, you know, approach of, of, of playing. Right. Okay. Well, so when it comes to uh, the machine of galleries or the art business or whatever, once you're finished with a piece that has been a pure experience for you, um, do you feel any pressure to try to explain what it means or like how do you present these kind of things? I think um, a lot of the times when I make work, at first I actually don't know what it's about. You know, I don't know why I made it. I don't know how it ties to anything else. Mm -hmm. And then what I've really kind of noticed especially in my own career, I guess, is that it comes around two, threefold later on. Huh. Um, and I say that because, you know, I give that example of the MCA Denver 10 years mm -hmm. after that I had first created them. They, they right. never gotten sh got shown, you know? Right. But it made sense in the context 10 years later when I was thinking about this idea of, language of grief hmm. that was the title of my show mm -hmm. and how language of grief is an illegible language hmm. it's so unique to every individual um it is almost like a bodily language mm -hmm. and when i was thinking about the body and body can you know body sort of uh language pertaining to the body I was thinking about when the band-aids made sense mm. the electrical heat blankets made sense this kind of these elements that kind of protect and heal you can be also used as sort of like this linguistic element mm. to create almost like a, well, it's, you know, it's called asemic writing. I don't know if, okay. you, if you're familiar, familiar with no. it. Um, the whole show was based on asemic writing. Okay. And asemic writing is interesting because it's a global style of writing that is without context. It's um, mm. like an open semantic form of writing that is more like a shadow or impression of um, conventional writing. Huh. Like a good example is like Cy Twombly's painting titled Resignation Letter. Mm -hmm. It's a large scribble, but it, okay. it looks like I'm out of here. <laughs> you know? Right. right. Um, and I say it's global because the creators of asymic writing are from all over the world. It's like a, um, there's a huge community behind asymic writing and it's okay. international in its mission and it ignores like obstacles of like education and background which i really love yeah. right and we've all we've all participated in asymic writing for example as a child 
before we learn how to write um, are attempted name writing or scribbles. That is mm -hmm. writing. Hmm. So I was very inspired by that. Okay. Um, and I wanted to base these works and kind of link them to acemic writing. So the Band-Aid paintings became this long sort of this 40-foot scroll. Hmm. And the heat blankets became its um, kind of made sense all of a sudden because yeah. the, the kind of... Um, The line that kind of comes through from the electrical heat blanket almost looks like a paragraph. Hmm. And I wanted to kind of just portray that and really link that to the idea of the eligibility of, of the language of Peter. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but you know, I think when it comes to talking about my work, sometimes yeah. I don't really um, show or or talk about them immediately afterwards. Sometimes I ruminate yeah. and keep it aside for five plus years. Yeah, until it does make sense. Okay. It's a significant thing because um, I do think that most artists sort of carry this thing in our head of um, we have to prove that it was worth it to make it or that you know the art serves some purpose. And there's this, uh, there's this interesting relationship between art and commerce, right? Uh, so for me, you know, I'm, I always try to create the thing that is most significant to me artistically, and then afterwards figure out how to market it, which, you know, they're just two separate things. For sure. And so are you creating these pieces and then just sort of storing them for uh, five years until you some, find a context for them? Yeah, some works, yes. Some huh. works. Um, I'll just think about it for plus years you know? yeah and huh. and sometimes they don't you know they don't really evolve into anything and and some do so I always like to think that nothing really goes to waste hmm. um, and I try to really kind of remember and document all of the thought processes that I have even though I even if I think it's stupid um, but yeah, that, that relationship between art and commerce is a tricky, it's a tricky, slippery slope. Yeah. I gotta say, Maya, though, your approach to it is uh, very, um, it's inspiring, honestly, because I, I feel like your forgiveness or, or gentleness with yourself, like allowing yourself to just create and not, not, uh, feel like you have to fit into some standard or... It just seems like you just let your creation be your creation, and uh, I just think it's cool. Thank you. you an air high five, air high five there, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I feel blessed, you know, um, because with that comes a lot of support and people that love you. Um, because, you know, I'm not saying that I'm, you know, I don't have my days when I think everything is bullshit, you know? Yeah, right. And I want to throw everything against the wall. But, mm -hmm. I'm just, you know, I think I've been blessed enough to have a steady sort of, a steady career. It's not been fast. Mm -hmm. It's not been slow. It's just mm -hmm. at the right pace, I think, for me. Yeah. And, you know, in my mind, I've always, even from the beginning, my mantra is I love I'm in it for the slow burn, you know? Mm. If I'm able to do this age 80, 90 until I die, I'd be yeah. stoked. Huh. <laughs> I'd be That's very so stoked, you know. I'd be I'd I'd be a lucky person if I could do that. And so in order for me to do that, I know that I need to pace myself. I need to really yeah. just take it slow, take it easy. You hit him with the uh, tortoise and tortoise versus the hare philosophy. Yeah, yeah. I'm nice. in no rush. I'm, nice. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, okay. So uh, we we're talking about you being kind to yourself and allowing your process. I think it's a perfect time to to ask about 
what circumstances do you feel fear in your creative process? And when you do, how do you work through it? That's a hard one. Um, I mean, I think self-doubt is a big one. And I think most artists or anyone could relate to that. Right. But um, personally, I have, you know, I try to not, I try really hard not to judge myself. Um, sometimes I can be very hard on myself hmm. and I think that comes from just specifically my upbringing too. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of ties in with the fear where I feel like I'm not good enough. Hmm. Um, but I really try to think about that as a separate thing as much as possible. Like it really is like an effort, you know, Yeah. to just be like, okay, these are not my thoughts. <laughs> ah. This huh. is how I've programmed to think. And I will, I need to, you know, disconnect from this programming. Huh. And that comes with so much, I guess, I don't know, self-discipline maybe in a way. Um, You know, I'm really far from my family. Mm. You know, um, my parents still live in Nepal. Okay. My brother lives in Korea. All my relatives Mm. are in Korea. I'm the first of my family to to be here. Um, I'm halfway across the world, you know. I see them once every three or four, sometimes five years. Hmm. It's, but you know, as, and as much as I love them, I feel like the space that I've been able to have mm-hmm. has given me a lot of confidence. Hmm. That has been very healing for me. And I think, I mean, I don't want it to sound like, you know, I want to be apart from them, but, you know, family dynamics are tricky. You know, I had a very kind of um, fraught relationship with my parents growing up. Hmm. And a lot of sort of like, uh, I really needed to do a lot of self, like reprogramming in order for me to like be here and do what I do. Um, so when I feel fear, I try and remind myself how far I've come. Oh, that's good. Because I've come a long way, you know, Right. physically, mentally, spiritually, you know, I've really come a long way and only I know that, you know? Yeah. Um, and I don't need to prove that to anybody. So that's something that I really try and ruminate on. Hmm. That's really cool to hear. I was thinking about some of the things you were saying about family. So, you know, for myself, I grew up in the American South, uh, which and uh, deeply involved in the church. My, my first job out of college was producing a television show for a televangelist. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, nobody, nobody would ever guess that. But, uh, but it was a church that I grew up in. And uh, so I, I know the more sort of constrictive aspects of that world particularly when you're an artist and i think it's a really interesting thing that when you talk about your sort of journey with your parents and their religion versus the religion of the culture that you're growing up in how um they still supported you as an artist um and so much so that they would send you to like a buddhist thing to learn art and weren't like afraid or trying to like Whatever, you know, like whatever that is kind of cool to hear that moment, you know. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a glitch in their system, you know. It glitched. <laughs> right. They right. didn't they, do their research. <laughs> nice. Thank God for that, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, seriously. Right, right. It's such an interesting thing, man. Like, uh, it's particularly when it comes to life, spirituality, philosophy, all of that stuff, um, how it all feeds into, I, I feel like, I guess, how your journey as a human being um, 
aligns with your journey as an artist. And I don't mean you specific. I mean, all of us, mm -hmm, you know, for sure. It's, it's part of why I like having these conversations, right? Because. Yeah, because it's not separate. It's just yeah. not separate. It can't be separated. And, you know, I, I try to keep it interlinked mm -hmm. throughout, even when I feel like I've found my art. I'm not mm -hmm. going to separate that from my life, you know? Right. Yeah, it's just the whole, whole thing is a package, you know? MCA Denver at the Holiday Theater is a hub for the arts located in this historic 400-seat theater. We aim to realize one-of-a-kind creative experiences for audiences that spark curiosity, challenge conventions, inspire, and delight. Visit mcadenver.org to learn more about the robust schedule of museum-driven and collaborative programming. Is your choice of medium uh, affected by where you are in life? Right now, um, yeah, I guess, you know, I'm quite resourceful and I try to find materials that are accessible in my mm. immediate surroundings. Uh, right now I'm working with a lot of rope ah. <laughs> and rope is accessible in all hardware stores. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And um, rope and ink is my main medium right now. Huh. And okay. Yeah, it's, uh, I guess, you know, it's interesting too, because that I actually ties in even with my move to Salida. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was kind of a, it was a COVID move. It was a sudden move. We were okay. out West in LA when the shutdown happened in New York. Right. Uh, we had to make a quick decision as to mm -hmm. what to do because we quickly realized that income would not Right. we had no idea what that would look like and there was no way we could just sit on our two studios and an apartment right. and not be there right so we uh two weeks into the pandemic we decided to shut it all down so we hired movers that went into our spaces and we packed up mm. our life over facetime wow everything went into storage and it's still in storage. I have hmm. not seen everything since then. Wow. And we ended up moving to Colorado because my partner's uh, fam uh, parents live here and he grew up here too. Okay. Um, but his mother was stuck in Florida, so the house was vacant. Huh. So we just drove straight from LA to Colorado Springs. Wow. We were there for two months and you know, I just, you know, was very deeply saddened that I had to leave New York so abruptly. But I think I was just also, you know, I think everyone obviously was going through it. But I was right. just like, I don't think this is it. I was like, hmm. I don't think this place is for me. Hmm. And Peter said, Peter's my husband. He was like, you know what? Well, let's check out this town. It's smaller. I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> smaller, you know population right. of uh, 6,000 and you know he was like well let's spend a couple months there more access to nature so we came out here yeah. and we came here with just a couple of things you know mm -hmm. my work right now that I'm working on and for many many years actually is called bondage baggage mm. um, it's basically luggage art <laughs> <laughs> okay and it's funny because this is one of those ideas I was telling you that I was thinking about and just sat on for about five years. Yeah. I would visit Nepal after I left Nepal to see my parents. Mm -hmm. And at the airport, I just started noticing the luggage coming down the conveyor belt looked so interesting. And I'd seen it my whole life, but I think I noticed it for the first time. Right. And luggage that was wrapped and bondage and tied in such a specific manner and style that I just started documenting it. So over five course of five years, every time I would visit them, I just documented all the luggage coming down until I got kicked out by security, you know? <laughs> so I ended up having about like over a hundred images of these 
eat this luggage. Some of them look like a mo- mozzarella. Some of them look like huh. a cardboard box that's just like taped with like tons of tape, and then there's rope right. wrapping around it. Um, and I was I was curious about it, and the curiosity kind of was what's inside, and yeah. why is it wrapped in this manner? And I soon found out that. The security at the airport, they're infamous for taking some things out, oh. luggage. So uh. the owners of the luggage, it's almost kind of like, you know, so that they won't tamper with it. It's mm-hmm. sealed in a very specific manner and so tight shut that no one could get into it. Hmm. So I was thinking about the idea of like self-preservation, right. privacy, um, labor because a lot of these people who are coming back to nepal are migrant workers working in the middle east malaysia singapore with like new things for their families right so you know i was thinking about labor i was thinking about migration i was thinking about borders you know a diasporic experiences i was like this is giving me so many ideas like i need to I need to stick, I, I want to do something with this, you know? Yeah. And so about five years passed and I decided to make a sculpture that actually just looked and represented sort of what it originally looked like with the same mm-hmm. materials that they were made in, you know, the actual luggage was made with. So homemade, home-found materials like bed sheets and cardboard boxes, okay. tapes, ropes. That evolved into basically these paintings. So I painted the entire sculpture in uh, India ink, which is usually used for calligraphy. A big thing in comic books too, actually. Yes, yes. Um, And I love India ink. India ink Mm. works beautifully with raw canvas. And, you know, the whole sculpture is painted. And when it's dry, I just cut the ropes off. Hmm. When the rope is off and I unwrap the entire sculpture because it's mm-hmm. covered in this canvas skin, unwrap the canvas skin, you're left with basically just the imprint of the folds, the the wrapping of the ropes. Yeah. And it kind of made me think about the imprint of experience, the imprint of... Um, just your life. Yeah. And it also looked kind of like a map too. Hmm. So it's not just about the past, but maybe it's also about the future hmm. moving forward, but also backwards at the same time. Um, so the reason why I brought that up is when I, so when we came to Salida, we came with our bags, you know? Right. And I was like, Oh my God, again, like, here we go again, more stuff. And, you know, now we have to settle again, you know. So the materials I end up just going with was what I felt made most sense, which is the rope and, and just canvas and ink. I love how you just uh, pull from your environment and then uh, use it to reflect what's going on inside of you. Okay, so Maya, wrapping up, there are two questions I have for you. Um, the first is... What do you have going on? What do you want to promote? I, I, I'm working on a couple of shows. Okay. Um, but they're kind of just in the works, I guess. Yeah. Um, and they're all next year. Um, okay. they, they've yet to be announced, so I don't think I can like specifically say what it is. But foreshadowing. Um, foreshadowing. To <laughs> be announced. Right on. <laughs> well, where uh, where can people interact with your work? Do you have a website or Instagram? Where do you prefer people? Oh, yeah, sure. I have a website. It's myruthi.club. Uh-huh. And um, Instagram is maya underscore ruth underscore nice. Um However, it is a private account. But, you know, add me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, but is that is that kind of like your intention for that to be your art? account and yeah it has my art but it also has a a huge portion of my life 
right just my family okay. life, my life here in Salida, my life in general. Um, mm. So yeah, it's a mix. It's a big mix. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. My last question is what is inspiring you these days? What are you watching, listening to? Um, what, what's, yeah, what's making you, feeding you creatively? You know, I just started watching Reservation Dogs. Ah. Have you seen it? Yes. Yeah. It's so good. It's so good and it's really inspiring. Um, I'm into the season two right now. And it's really kind of making me think about so many different things. Hmm. And it's such a poignant and beautiful show where I was just like, this is such a soft, like, it makes me feel so soft inside, like really huh. warm and soft inside. Thinking about ancestry, thinking about tradition, thinking about culture, thinking about family, thinking about friendship and youth, um, thinking about aspirations, you know, or yeah. lost dreams, or but also it's such a funny show. Hmm. Yeah. And Definitely. I was just like, wow, I haven't seen a good show in a while, so <laughs> I was kind of stoked. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Hey, Maya, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Oh, well, thanks for having me. That was fun. Sorry if I just blab on and on. <laughs> hey, you know, that's, that's, it's just kind of the cool thing to be able to talk about your process and journey and stuff like that. Special thank you to today's guest, Maya. Thanks to our listeners. Please be sure to subscribe to How Hard Is Born wherever you get your podcasts and more episodes. If you can, leave a review. It really helps us out. Check out MTA Denver on YouTube and subscribe there too for behind-the-scenes clips from today's episode. Don't forget to visit MTA Denver's current exhibition, The Dirty Sow, on view now. Hey, if you love How Art Is Born, there's another podcast that I think you should check out. It's called Off The Walls, and it's all about the people and stories behind Denver's street art. In each episode, you'll meet artists, activists, and other Denverites to explore some powerful murals around town and why they matter. Find Off The Walls from Denverite and Colorado Public Radio wherever you get podcasts.